Good morning, LifePoint. Welcome to church. Welcome to our worship, and so glad you're here. I want to welcome those of you watching our live stream as well, and those later, watching later on uh, in the week, maybe later today on YouTube. And before we get into the Life Connection, I just uh, want to share with you some super exciting news. Uh, John Engel and his wife, Janelle, uh, this past Thursday, welcomed their new son into the world, uh, Canaan Bright Engel. Yeah, let's give him a hand. And uh, welcomed him into the world here, uh, eight pounds, six ounces, 21 and one quarter inches long. You got to get all the particulars, you know, all the, all the details. Uh, John's uh, got Canaan signed up for Taekwondo and some other things. And, you know, I'm sure he's going to be taking music lessons very, very soon, along with all the kids. But uh, just a beautiful family, and we're so, so happy for them. And if you're watching, guys, congratulations. We're super happy for you. I can't wait to meet Canaan. Can't wait for that. But, well, we're in this series, Games People Play. And today, we're going to do a different game. We're transitioning into Trivial Pursuit. So how many of you have played the game of Trivial Pursuit? Okay, a bunch of you. So this game goes back a while. It goes back to 1982 when a couple Canadian journalists were having a friendly debate over who was better at board games and games in general. So they started posing different questions to each other, and out of that emerged the game Trivial Pursuit. And, and in this game, there are six different categories, like geography and history and sports and leisure and those kinds of things. And uh, what you do is you have a uh, game piece. You have to get different pieces of pie as you answer different questions. You go around this wheel-shaped board, get to the center, answer the final question, and you win. And uh, I'm not a big trivia person. Uh, I played the game. I'm pretty good at it. But some people are very good at different parts of this game. In fact, uh, I think about my mother-in-law, Joan, who's sitting over here. And Joan's going to freak out because she knows I was going to mention her. But uh, Joan, in the 80s and 90s, when we would play that game, if we ever had teams, I wanted you, Joan, on my team because she could always get the pink piece of pie. And I never could. That was entertainment. In the 50s, 60s, 70s, I didn't know much about that. I was too busy running around outside doing weird things. I don't know. But, uh, but she was very uh, good at that. And, and uh, you know, the game is fun. It's fun. Trivia can be interesting. But sometimes what we do unwittingly is we turn life into a game of trivial pursuit. And we don't want that to happen. We don't want our lives to be that way. We want to live lives of significance. We want to live lives of meaning. We want to live lives that are impactful. But sometimes we really can focus on things that aren't really that significant in the grander scheme of things. Uh, this can happen. I came across uh, an article this past week um, about uh, how so often we can uh, get into things that don't matter. 23 problems that people have at Whole Foods. And we don't have a Whole Foods around here, but the thing that was such an outrage was, was that there wasn't guacamole. Like, they got in there and there was no guacamole. So it's like ruined the entire day. Now, the word trivia itself is interesting because it comes from the Latin words tri, which means three, and via, which means road, or way, and it speaks of a crossroads, that there's a crossroads. 
And ancient people understood this word because when they traveled, inevitably they would come to a crossroads. And at that crossroads, while they, while they rested, they met fellow travelers, and those travelers would have stories to tell. And so they would hang out and tell stories with each other, and these would be like the gossip of the day. Did you see that guy who went into the palace and what he was dressed like? Yeah, that was pretty weird. And like all kinds of gossip of the day, the idle talk, the things they would laugh at, et cetera, et cetera. It was kind of a moment to laugh at and catch up on trivial things. And, and we're good at that too. In fact, honestly, and I think it's true for all of us, we're very tempted in our day and age to make the trivial super important. I noticed that uh, this past week when I was driving home and I, I got to a, a stoplight and I was in the right lane and there was one car in front of me and they would not turn right on red. Okay, so here's the, here's the situation. I got, I'm trying to go somewhere and they would not turn right on red, and I'm getting a little worked up about it. I'm being a little, you know, getting focused on this. It's like, come on, just turn. And they would not turn right on red because they were looking down at something, which I imagine was a phone or a screen or something. I'm like, you could go now. You could go, how about now? No, no, they weren't looking at all. To make it even worse, to make me feel very guilty, deep, deep shame, deep shame, there was a bumper sticker on the car, and the bumper sticker said this, and I'm not even making this up. It said, please be patient, student driver, okay? So it didn't just say student driver, because student driver, I just ignore that now, because if you're a student driver, you need to have somebody in the car with you who tells you to turn right on red, because you, you got to go. Just go. So student driver's not enough. It's the, the previous part of that, please be Patient, I don't want to be patient. I want you to turn right on red, okay? Just, just do that, okay? So we get worked up about the most trivial things. It, it could be the grocery store line. It's like we're in the grocery store. Why do we pick the, the line that takes the longest time? I, I don't know. I do all the time. Or the car door blows on our leg because the wind's blowing or that kind of thing, or we can't find the remote, which is a major crisis, like where's the remote, and we're pulling, you know, cushions, it's in the cushions somewhere, but probably the worst thing of all is when we can't find really our most precious item in this world, it's our phone. I mean, our kids are more important, um, and if we left our kids, say, at a restaurant or we left our kids at a friend's house. We just got in the minivan. We forgot them. They were there. What would we do? We'd immediately get into the car, and we'd go to the restaurant, and we would go to a friend's house, and we would pick them up, right, because we love them. We love them. We need to, they need to come home. Wouldn't we do the same with our phone? If we lost our phone, we would do the same thing. We'd be, right, I've got to go right out the door and go get my phone at the restaurant or at a friend's house, et cetera, because we might miss a tweet. Like, what if a tweet came through? That, that is not acceptable. What if we had a notification, whether there was a weather update, there's a tornado in Oklahoma. It's like, you gotta, you gotta know about these things. You know, what if Kim Kardashian had something to say about Pete Davidson? It's like, man, their relationship is, is going, it's going. And, you know, you know, what if Kanye had a, a retort, like he did some video or something? I, I gotta, 
I gotta know. And we find ourselves really hyper-focused on a lot of things. We can become like that lost in space robot, and they got the remake, I think it's on Netflix. It's like arms flailing, emergency, emergency, because, well, we don't have our phone, we're gonna miss something. And it's very easy to make the trivial super, super important. But it's also possible to make what is really important in this world and especially to God, we can make the important really trivial too. This is a problem that one of Israel's most powerful and successful kings had. He started the most influential dynasty in the Old Testament and among the people of Israel. His name was Omri, and he was king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And I want to look at Omri's life today because it's super instructive to our lives today, thousands of years later. And we read about Omri in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 23. It says, in the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri became king of Israel, and he reigned 12 years, six of them in Tirzah, and he bought the hill of Samaria from Shemar for two talents of silver and built a city on the hill, calling it Samaria, after Shamir, the name of the former owner of the hill. And here we're introduced to this man, Omri. And he is a king of the northern kingdom of Israel, and he is a very effective ruler. He is a very good king. He is smart. He makes incredible leadership decisions. Uh, he is a visionary in so many different ways, and he leads the nation into a time of immense peace and prosperity. He is one who has stabilized the, the violent and chaotic political climate of the day. He stabilizes this whole thing. He defends the nation against other enemies and, and does a great job of protecting his people. He's establishing a dynasty that is lasting and stable. He's forming alliances with others that, again, increase the prosperity of the people. Omri's greatest accomplishment, though, is what we read about here in verse 24, that he, built, he bought the hill of Samaria. He was like, he saw this hill, and he goes, I want that hill. And it turned out to be a brilliant move. In fact, um, he got it dirt cheap, super cheap. He got a bargain on this whole thing, and he wanted this hill because he was such a visionary, he knew something. He knew that if I bought that hill, I purchased that hill, if it was mine, I could use that area to create a new capital city. And it's exactly what he did. He created a, an amazing, spectacular capital city from that, that little hill, and he called it Samaria. And it was very visionary because it was centrally located for all his people. His people could get there very easily. It was also easily protected from enemies as they would come against the city. And most importantly, it was situated perfectly on a trade route so that merchants from different places as they traveled along, well, they'd have to stop at Samaria with their wares and what they were selling, and it created even greater prosperity as these traders and merchants came to town than they had ever experienced before. 
And Omri was so good at leading and so successful that he was recognized for this for, for over 100 years after he died. In fact, archaeological evidence shows that Assyrian documents refer to Omri, to Israel, not as Israel. They don't refer to Israel as Israel. They refer to Israel as the house of Omri because this is the guy who set it all up. This is the guy that made it happen. This is the guy who made such major accomplishments. But Omri had one huge, huge problem. He made one major miscalculation. And we read about that as we take this a little further in 1 Kings chapter 16. And it begins with the word but. Oh, oh man, now we know. It's, there's something to follow here. But, oh, I did all this but. But what? But Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. He walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and in his sin, which he had caused Israel to commit, so that they provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their worthless idols. Omri was very good at some important things. He accomplished important things but his major miscalculation is that he didn't focus on the most important thing of all, and that was his relationship with God, his faith, his spiritual life. His responsibility as king, the king of Israel, was not to just be a worshiper of the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but the king of Israel was to be the chief worshiper. In other words, let me show you how to worship God. Let me model faith so that you want to embrace it for yourselves. Not only did he neglect his relationship with God entirely, but he even took it further. He walked in the ways of the king Jeroboam who went before him. He walked in the sins of his predecessor. The sings of Jeroboam are interesting because at one point, Israel was one people, and then it divided into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, Israel and Judah. Jeroboam was the first king after, of the divided kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel, and he was known not as a good ruler, but as someone who embraced the false gods of the day. He worshiped the wrong things. He replaced the system of holy days and sacrifices and the worship of the one true God with man-made, a man-made system where they built man-made idols and worshiped those things. And it really, really made God just recoil and say, why have you rejected me? And I think the one thing we see here is that greatness in the world's eyes is not necessarily greatness in God's eyes. Greatness in the world's eyes is not necessarily greatness in God's eyes. What impresses the world around us is not necessarily the things that impresses God. What gets God's attention and what, pour, what he pours out his favor on and what brings him pleasure is not the same as sometimes what the world throws our way. In fact, often it can be very, very different. Omri had all 
the success this world could imagine. He probably had his name on buildings, on gardens. They remembered him. The archaeological record recorded him. And, and we'd say, well, that is, that's quite a man. And, and yet, if we think about it, if you've not read the Old Testament, or if you're not an archaeology geek on the side, you probably never heard of Omri. He was the, one of the most powerful men who ever lived. He was one of the most powerful men, man ever on the planet. I bet most of you didn't hear of it of him, unless again you've read the Bible or you love archaeology and you're like, I got stuff in your room and you got looking at stuff. I don't know why, because greatness in this world fades. It goes away. It's limited. It has a shelf life, but greatness in God's eyes does not. And Omri. His decision was to choose what was fleeting. And he, his major miscalculation was this, that the most important thing in this life, his spiritual life, his faith, his relationship with God, his responsibility to love God and help others find God for him was trivial. It was unimportant. It wasn't worthy of his time and as a result, he walked in the ways of Jeroboam. He pr provoked God with his worthless pursuit of worthless idols. The same thing can happen to us, that we can live wanting to be great or achieve things in this world and, and without calculating whether or not we're lining ourselves up for what really is most important, and that is greatness in God's eyes. That we can live for money and fame and prestige and to be known. We can get our name on stuff and, and all this kind of thing. And we can so hyper-focus on this world in our lives that we get taken into that and we fail to be ready for the day when we stand before God, when we give account for how we've lived, where in fact God assesses and evaluates our lives. Omri didn't get that right. His passions were misfocused. He lived for human recognition, and in the end, he miscalculated. He made a big-time mistake. And soon, Omri died, and he's been thrown into the dustbin of history. We're only talking about him because the Bible recorded it. Otherwise, we wouldn't even know him. But Omri dies, and his son takes over. His son is named, named Ahab. And Ahab is a man who will continue to lead the people of Israel. The question is, how will he do it? Turns out he made the same major miscalculation of his father. In fact, we see that not only did he continue the same path of rejecting God and turning away from God, but he took it to another level, to a big-time extreme. We read about Ahab, and as we continue in 1 Kings 16, Verse 29, it says, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. So his dad is dead. His dad is gone. Ahab is taken over. Uh, and it's his turn. It's his time. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Now, that's quite a, an accomplishment. 
Because Jeroboam has set this up in a bad direction. And he was really evil and rejected God and turned away from his faith tradition and the history of all that God had done, how he delivered Israel from, from Egyptian bondage and brought them through the wilderness and protected them and provided and led them to the land of flowing with milk and honey, the land of Canaan. It was just a great, great stretch where God proved his faithfulness. Throw it all aside. We're going to do our own thing here. And Omri set the course for his son, and Ahab takes it even further and does more evil than any of the others before him. He not, and, and verse 31 really is huge. It says, he not only considered it trivial, trivial, he not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all of the kings of Israel before him. Ahab continues this stretch of bad, defiant kings. And verse 31 is huge because he considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam. He Basically, what this means is that his faith in God was not important to him. His devotion to God was not a priority. His loving and serving the one true God was something of insignificance to him, not knowing God, not a big deal, because I'm charting my own course. I'm going to do my own thing. And so we have to look at this and ask ourselves, you know, what led to this, this moment where uh, over time he just trivialized what was really important? And how do we make sure we don't follow the same course? What can cause us to trivialize, I'll try to say that word, trivialize what God says is really important. I think, first of all, cultural influences can cause us to trivialize the important. Cultural influences. We are all products of culture. There are good and bad things in culture. There are positive and negative things in every culture. And Ahab grew up as a little kid being uh, influenced by the culture of the palace, which was established by his father, Omri. He was raised in a culture that had rejected God, that had turned from God, that made faith kind of a superficial, unimportant thing, unnecessary. It was something shallow to be rejected. And he was also taught that the most important thing was his own prestige and power to go forward and to make a name for himself. And that's exactly what he did. That's the faith he saw. Those are the priorities that he learned in the palace as a little kid from his father, from everybody else around him, and from the general culture around him as well. And that is something that we're tempted to do from time to time as well because Ahab experienced all these things and he ran into this and went forward with this in an unquestioning way. 
we're tempted to do the same exact thing, that we kind of experience a culture that largely rejects God. And it's very tempting in our day and age to run with those experiences, to say, you know, I, I don't know about this God thing or, you know, uh, what media says about Christians, what a professor said, what a friend said, all these kinds of things. And, and we listen to these voices and say, yeah, yeah, you're right. They're all but just a bunch of uh, hypocrites. No one is serious. They're not even really that smart. And so let's just reject it out of hand and move on. But culture also sets us up for a, a big-time mistake because not only does it give us a caricature of faith that is not accurate because there are plenty of super smart, very committed people. There are good churches and there are good people who follow faith throughout history, but we don't hear about those because it's just negative images in media, et cetera, et cetera. But on top of that, the culture does something else to us. It discourages us from investigating truth. The culture today is less in interested in substance and more interested in trivia, more interested in sound bites and memes and tweets and posts. Don't dig deeper. Don't look into this. Just look at the meme that I put up, and we're, like, supposed to run with that. Ahab never investigated his faith. He never looked into it to see if maybe there, this faith tradition from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, from David and Sa Solomon before him was worth re-examining, re worth considering. He never got there because he just ran with what he saw in the culture around him. And there's actually a law that explains this. It originated with a man, and if you've been in leadership things over the years, if you've done like leadership events, You've probably heard of uh, Parkinson's Law. Cyril Northcote Parkinson came up with Parkinson's Law, which basically is a time management thing that says that, that tasks expand to fill the time. And that's another message for another day. So that's a, a time type of focus uh, in terms of leadership. But uh, Parkinson also came up with another law called the Law of Triviality. And it's as relevant today as ever. This is the law that states that in an organization, complex and important issues tend to get the least amount of discussion, while simple, minor issues dominate discussion. So in other words, in organizations, it's way easier to bypass the complicated, the difficult issues to talk about less important issues Altogether, it can happen in our families. It's like you know, we're talking about like the meatloaf. Like, yeah, the meatloaf, man, it really needs more onion powder. If we could just get more onion powder in this thing, I mean, this thing it would be way, way better. And and by the way, that light bulb upstairs, you know, you're way taller than me. Can't you just reach up there and take the old one out and put it in? Because I mean, I can't see. It's hard for me to do like my thing in the bathroom. It's like we can focus on all those things rather than maybe some deeper relationship things that are screwing things up, that are derailing us. Uh, the elephant in the room, man, it's so much easier to live with the stink and just focus on other stuff around and not deal with the important things. The same thing can happen in terms of our faith, is that we take these caricatures, we take a simplistic view of faith, we run with it, we build our lives on it, and we never really investigate it to, in any depth. 
We draw conclusions without looking into history or archaeology or science. We live as perpetual agnostics and say, I don't know, I don't know, but maybe we should know, maybe we should kind of hit that fork in the road and make a decision. But too often, culture encourages us not to dig deep, not to have a substantive conversation, but to focus what is, on what is simple and what is trivial. And we have to recognize that as, as Christ followers, as those thinking about spiritual things, which we are thinking about spiritual things, that's why you're here, that's why you're watching, Paul reminds us to focus on important things. Don't let them drift away. Don't get, let them get swallowed up in simple, trivial things. Don't lose sight of what God says is important. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. Here it says first, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Why does Paul say that? Because it's so easy to do. It's so easy. We're social beings. We say, I'm a rock, I'm an island. You're not, you're not. You're influenced by the culture which says that that's acceptable and cool. You didn't know that, but yeah, that's me. We are social beings. We are shaped by other people. We are shaped by relationships. We're shaped by the messaging around us. And so it's saying, do not be conformed by the patterns of this world because the current of culture is always pulling you downstream away from God. It's always pulling you downstream, away from a relationship with him. It's minimizing faith. It's mocking faith. It's making it into something that is far from what Jesus intended. Again, a caricature of faith. Don't conform any longer to uh, the patterns of this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let God's word play a role in your investigation. Let God's word play a role in addressing your doubts because you may have doubts and we all have doubts from time to time and it's like, how do I work? Let God's word play a role in addressing those things and move forward in a way that where you investigate. Let him uh, address your life issues. Let his word play a bigger role in your mind because the culture is a megaphone. It's loud. And we have to be careful not to make that the biggest voice always speaking to us about spiritual things. And what's fascinating about this passage is that if we get that right and we're, we're careful not to conform to everybody's opinion, everybody's opinion about God, opinion about you, etc., and we allow God to transform us so we get our identity from him and we're thinking about what he says and we want him to drive our life and guide our steps, one day... Something amazing is going to happen to your life when you get this right because God is going to prove to you that his will for your life is actually really, really good. He will prove, test and approve what God's will is. What is his will for your life? His will for your life is phenomenal. He wants to bless your life. He wants to bless your marriage. He wants to bless your home. He wants to guide your steps. He wants to help you navigate the uncertainties, the forks in the roads to manage and cope with the stress and anxiety that we all inevitably face. 
And God will prove it to such a degree that one day we will approve and say, man, uh, you've proven and I approve this path because, man, it is good, just like you said. His will is good, it's pleasing, it's perfect. But Ahab, in the midst of this, sadly missed it all because he went with the flow. He let the culture dictate his direction. He never took the time to look into his own history, to examine the claims of faith. He never allowed that truth to shape his life and make him into a better king. God wanted to make him into a better king, make him into a better person, to lead him to prosperity that was not temporal but eternal, to help lots of people take steps on their spiritual journeys so that they too could be right with God. His life could have been way, way better, but he wasn't there. He just rejected it. He went for not enduring success, not greatness in God's eyes, but the fleeting temporal trivial things of this world. We can also trivialize the important in another way, We can do that with our relationships. Relational influences can cause us to trivialize the important as well. The culture that Ahab grew up in, in the palace with his dad and all around him, was a huge, huge influence on his life. But so was the closest person in his orbit. So was the closest person in his life. His wife, Jezebel. And Jezebel wasn't just someone who was like, ah, whatever, to faith things. Like, yeah, whatever. I mean, if you, it's your thing. I'm not into it. And she wasn't ad, uh, agnostic about it either. Like, I don't know, but you do whatever. No, actually, she was completely antagonistic to the faith of the one true God, in the one true God, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She was completely hateful of this God. We read about Jezebel again in 1 Kings Verse 31, he, on, he not only, and this is Ahab, not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and began, because of her influence, taking it even further to serve Baal, to worship him. He set up an altar to Baal in the temple of Baal, which incidentally he built to please his wife. He built a temple to Baal to please his wife. And he set up an Asherah Paul, another god of the day. And he provoked the Lord to anger in all these things because he kept rejecting the God who was pursuing him, the God who loved him, and the God who grieved his decisions as many people were damaged because of his pagan faith. And it's interesting here that Ahab allowed someone into his life with huge influence and didn't see that the people we bring closest shape us. They mold us. And uh, Jezebel turned out to be the greatest supporter of pagan worship, of Baal worship. She was a patron of this false god, and she inspired him to take dramatic steps away from God. And this worship of Baal was wicked and was really evil. And we get a sense of that, and I just want you to have a feel for what's happening. In verse uh, 33 and following, there 
is a reference that you can read on your own because later it talks about how, how uh, Ahab rebuilt the, the foundations of Jericho, another city, and it says he rebuilt the foundations of the city of Jer Jericho at the cost of his firstborn son. And you're like, man, that's really tragic. I mean, his son died. Maybe he was working on the project, and I don't know, a cinder block fell on his head. But somehow, he was doing this, and that's not what happened at all. Actually, this was child sacrifice. This is what Baal liked. And so uh, Ahab and Jezebel sacrificed their firstborn son. They killed their son. And then what they would do, there was actually a name for this. It's called a foundation sacrifice. It was something in Baalism in the Old Testament. They would take the child and they would put them in a mason jar, the dead child, and then they would place the mason jar into the mortar of a foundation for a building or structure. And why would they do that? They would do that and, and sacrifice their own child to please the gods, because God liked that somehow. And also to ward off, ironically, to ward off evil. So in other words, I commit the most atrocious, despicable act of evil to ward off evil. This explains why God's provoked. This explains a lot of the anger that God has in the Old Testament. The background helps us get a handle on all these things. And what we really see here is that, that people were embracing a life that was destroying the people around them. And Ahab himself was influenced towards atrocious, horrible things because the closest person to him was a patron of all this, supported all this. I think what it says to us today is that we have to be really careful about the types of people we bring in our own orbit. Proverbs 11, 13, 20 says, he who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. Who we listen to matters. Who we bring closest to us matters. And, and that doesn't mean that we disassociate, we have no relationships with people that are far from God or who have a lifestyle that's messed up because I was messed up and I made bad choices and I'm glad that everyone around me didn't reject me. No, it doesn't mean that we disassociate with everybody who might be far from God or was kind of screwed up in the moment. No, we don't do that, but we make the people that are closest to us those with a voice that encourages our faith, that brings us closer to God, those relationships that we really are, are, are more trusting are vital, and we need the people around us to to spur us on and encourage us on our journey because who we listen to matters. If you walk with the wise, get ready. You'll get wise. If you want to be a good father, hang out with people who are good fathers. If you want to be a good mother, hang out with those who are good mothers. If you want to hang out, you know, want to grow and become somebody who's a good leader, listen to and hang out with good leaders. If you want to be a, a good Christ follower and, and have joy and peace and power in your life, find somebody who's a little ahead on the journey, not perfect, doesn't have it all together, is willing to admit that, but cares about it, has a track record of working on it, and is seeing results. Because if you hang out with the wise, you're going to become wise. 
Proverbs uh, also talks about advice in Proverbs 12, 26. The godly give good advice to their friends. The wicked lead them astray. The NIV translates it this way. The righteous are cautious about friendship because they know the people they draw closest will have the biggest influence in their lives. And I think what this says to us is that we need spiritual community more than ever. And why? Why do we need spiritual community more than ever? Because we need God's word more than ever. Because in a dark world with lots of cross currents, lots of things trying to pull us away, a lot of people with superficial understandings of faith that make big, big, bold statements about faith, but they've never really looked into it, can sway us and get us off the path. But it's God's word that is a light to our path. It's a lamp to our feet. That's God's word. So we're walking this path, and it's like, I, I got darkness all around me. I got voices all around me. I got cross currents coming this way. And it's like we got this path, and God's, my word is a light. My word is a lamp to your feet. If you, if you follow it, if you listen to it, if you let it guide your steps, his word will lift us. It will encourage us. It will correct us, because here's the deal. We get off the path. We're over here. I'm going to wander into darkness over here. It's like, I got darkness over here, and God's saying, listen. Listen to my word. Just come back. It's a way better path. It corrects us. It directs us. It leads us to a life where we'll say, wow, this path is good. It is a path of prosperity. It's a, a path of great blessing. And so we need community because we're not hearing God's word anywhere in our culture. Sometimes it's completely distorted. It's in community where we gather to worship to honor God, where, where we actually find ourselves uh, releasing our, our burdens to a God who cares about those burdens, where we connect in meaningful community, where I walk alongside other people who say, listen, I see you kind of wandering off the road, and they're like, come on back, come back. I, I want people like that in my life. Yeah, I'm kind of wandering, like, oh, what's going on? Oh, okay, thanks. I, I didn't see. Yeah, well, I needed you. We need that in our world today. And to serve one another. We should be loving and serving one another. And we should be loving and serving the world as never before. Because we're not trivializing the important. We're focused hardcore, directly, passionately on what God says is important. I want to leave you with one last quote. It's from author Charles Burkowski uh, who says this. People are constantly angered by trivial things. But on, major, but on a major matter like totally wasting their lives, they hardly seem to notice. And this is something we need to guard against because it's so easy to make the trivial important and to make the important trivial. And the great news in all of this is that with the right people around us and the right input in our minds, we're never going to play a game of trivial pursuit because we will focus our lives passionately on the things that truly, truly matter most. Let's pray.